We're going to be finishing off Joshua chapter 3 today, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had complete, crossed completely over the Jordan. Amen. Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach it and for each of us to faithfully receive it and live it. May our faith grow. Uh, may we, Father, be committed to walking in the Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at the nature of faith in this uh, chapter. Uh, this is kind of the Hebrews 11 of the Old Testament. It's an amazing uh, chapter on faith. So we looked at what constitutes genuine faith, what constitutes uh, counterfeit faith. That was two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at the 10 factors that undergirded the faith of these people that made them willing to conquer the land for the Lord. And I liken those um, 10 factors to 10 doses of fertilizer in which a culture of faith can grow. And today we're going to be building on last week's uh, lesson, pretty much looking at the last point and showing uh, what it means to walk by faith. And I've summarized the passage in seven words. But before we look at those seven words, I do want to look at a controversy of what exactly this miracle looked like. Uh, I, I think that this was a far more spectacular miracle than most people nowadays tend to think of it as being. And uh, there are two theories of what happened here. Theory one says that God blocked the river 18 miles north of them. Some people round it up to 20 miles, but it's, it's 18 miles north, uh, a city called Adam. Uh, and he blocked it by a natural uh, formation of a dam, earth kind of falling into the, into the river. Now, in this theory, the people would not have been able to see the blockage. And the way the New King James Version here translates it, it certainly favors that theory. Uh, and there's actually some basis for this theory. Uh, the text uh, could be translated the way the New King James does. So, you know, I think it's... Um, it's a legitimate uh, theory. It's not a literal translation. We're going to be looking at the literal translation later. Uh, second, uh, the river is much narrower near Adam and has indeed been blocked at least six times in recorded history that we know of. Uh, now, granted, it was not blocked uh, during a time of flooding and probably could not have been blocked during a time of flooding. But it is interesting. There's been at least six documented landslides in the last 1,500 years that have dammed the river up from anywhere from two hours uh, to two days. That's pretty significant. So that's theory number one. The second theory, and this is the one that I hold to, says that the waters heaped up higher and higher immediately to the right of Israel, something they were able to see. And this follows a much more literal translation of the Hebrew word echad in verse 16. And those who hold to this second theory also say that crediting this blockage of water to a... Um, a natural um, landslide uh, 18 miles north uh, contradicts up to eight exegetical points. Now, they also point out there's some contradictions of science, but uh, they mainly are looking at the exegesis of the passage. And because I see no way of getting around at least four or five of those eight exegetical points, I firmly hold to this uh, second theory. So let me give you a brief summary of each of these eight reasons. 
First, there are indicators that this was a miracle, not simply a seismic anomaly 18 miles north. And uh, you can see that from the word wonders in verse 5. Uh, that's a synonym. It means miracles. Um, and there are other indicators we're going to look through in these eight exegetical reasons to show this, uh, this is really is a supernatural miracle that happened. Second, the fact that the plural form for wonders is used in verse 5 indicates that there had to be at least two miracles that took place here. Now, any time that the people who advocate for the first theory try to inject a second miracle uh, into the narrative, uh, they completely undermine the need for that theory. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But to summarize, one of those miracles is that the ground completely dried up in verse 17. It wasn't muddy. It was instantly dry ground. So that is definitely uh, a miracle. But what is the second miracle? Uh, those who hold to the first theory, they, have a, they struggle. They have a hard time coming up with a second miracle. And most uh, say, actually, there wasn't even this miracle. They say there was mud. They're trying to get all of these boulders out of the mud, they say. No, there was no mud. It was dry, dry ground. Third, both verse uh, 13 and verses 15 through 16 indicate that the instant the priests stepped into the river, into the water, the water coming down toward them stood still. It didn't drain. It stood still. There's a big difference between standing still and draining. But if it had stood still from a natural seismic shift of uh, dirt 18 miles north, there would not have been an instantaneous stopping of the river the moment their feet stepped into the water, since it would take a long time for the waters of Adam to reach the place of the Jericho, and the lay of the geography would make it gradually decrease uh, and slow down rather than instantaneously stop. So the text is quite clear. Something instantaneously stopped the water from flowing the moment their feet touched it. I think that is pretty clear. Fourth, chapter 4, verse 18, is quite clear that the instant the priest stepped out of the riverbed, the water began to flow, it says, as before. Something impossible to explain in terms of scientific principles of hydraulics and uh, if theory number one is correct, then the whole point of that theory is to explain this miracle in terms of natural causes. In my opinion, you cannot do that without some contradictions in the text. The fifth clue is that the first part of verse 16 doesn't say that the waters stood still upstream. It says that the waters which came from upstream stood still. Again, there's a big difference between those two. Um, if the water is flowing from upstream stood still, I think it's most natural to interpret it. They stood still right there. Uh, now, granted, if the second clause is exegetical of the first clause, and if the New King James translation is correct, you could explain away this, um, uh, this objection by saying it stood still up at Adam. But the literal Hebrew indicates the waters that had already come down from upstream stood still. Sixth, those waters that came from upstream started rising up in a heap. That doesn't sound like a natural dam. A natural dam just blocks the water. Uh, they don't make water stand up in a heap. This sounds more like it is piling up in the air where they could see it. In other words, God is forming a supernatural invisible dam right where they are. Now, people say, okay, if that's the case, why on earth does he men mention Adam 18 miles north? And that's the next two reasons that totally fits our theory. The seventh point deals with translation. There are words, actually, in the Hebrew that are not translated into the New King James uh, translation. Literally, it goes like this. That the waters which had come down from upstream stood still and were rising up, that's the Hebrew word kamu, in a heap, the Hebrew word nade, backing up a chad, a great deal, ma'od, as far back as, erchaik, to the city of Adam. So the idea is there's a supernatural dam that stopped up the waters that were coming down to him, and those waters, not other waters, but the waters that had come down to them, stood up in a rising heap, and since they could not go forward, they started backing up and forming a temporary lake 
uh, that extended all the way back to Adam where the narrow gorge would not allow it to back up any further. Okay, and I've given someone's diagram of an estimate of how much water would have accumulated during that day and how tall the wall was. Now, there's no way of knowing for sure how much water was flowing. It doesn't tell us, right? And um, so there are various guesstimates people have taken based on past history and whatnot. And this wall of water ranges in estimates by scientists from 100 feet high to 200 feet high. I think one of the most realistic estimates is about 120 uh, feet high uh, by the end of the day because it kept accumulating during that day. But it could have been much more than that. Well, that literal translation fits the geography perfectly since there is a bold depression that would accommodate this lake from the place where they crossed all the way up to Adam, where the narrow inlet would form the mouth to the lake. This translation is also verified in Psalm 78, verse 13, where the exact same language of water heaping up is used of the Red Sea crossing. Psalm 78, 13 says, He divided the sea and let them pass through and made the waters stand like a heap. And so there were two walls of water standing as heaps beside them. Here there's one wall of water standing as a heap uh, on one side. The literal interpretation is also confirmed in Psalm 114, 3, where it says the Jordan was turned back or held back, or the King James says fled back. Any of those are legitimate uh, translations. So there is a movement of water backward as they push against the dam. They have nowhere to go but backwards and outwards. And again, it's like God is putting an invisible barrier to the water where it cannot go forward, and instead it's backing up a great deal all the way to the city of Adam. Eighth, Verse 16 says that only the waters that were on their left, in other words, that's flowing to the south down to the Dead Sea, only the waters that were to the left were cut off or disappeared. Now that contrast, and there is a contrast, implies that the waters to their right did not disappear, were not cut off. Hebrew indicates the waters to their right stopped, but the waters to their left disappeared. They moved away. They did not stop. And so the distinction between the waters on the left going south, the waters on their north flowing from the north, argues strongly that there was not dry land all the way back to the city of Adam. On theory one, there would have been no distinction between the left and right. Both sides would have been cut off. Again, every word and every phrase of these verses needs to be accounted for, and those who hold to the second theory say that all eight of these exegetical reasons are just kind of brushed over and ignored by those who hold to theory number one, the earthquake landslide dam theory. Now, in one sense, it really doesn't matter which of those theories is correct because God would still have had to have done some pretty remarkable things. He would have, I believe, they don't agree, but they, he, I think he would have had to have dried up all of the mud so that, uh, you know, the men, women, and children and their carts and their big equipment would be able to get out over that river without, uh, without getting stuck. And... Um, uh, uh, then he would have had to have broken the dam up north so that the torrent of water that comes rushing down would arrive just at the instant that the priest stepped out of the riverbed. Now, God could have done that. But um, Henry Morris, who has a degree in water hydraulics and many others believe it just creates, theory number one creates way too many scientific and exegetical problems. And um, so they, they hold pretty strongly to theory two. Todd Fink, let me read two other authors who hold to this theory. Todd Fink summarizes the scientific evidence of how much water would have accumulated during that day, and he says this. The crossing of the Jordan was a much bigger miracle than we think, as the river was at flood stage overflowing its banks. As mentioned, the body of water that would have accumulated would have been 20 miles long, two miles wide, and around 120 feet high. This was a massive body and wall of water the three million or more Israelites would have witnessed as they walked alongside of it for two miles. And so he guesstimates the wall of water to be 120 feet high, and hopefully it gives you a very, very vivid uh, picture of how spectacular this was. Modern commentaries, they try to explain everything in terms of scientific principles, and in the process what they're doing is they're explaining miracles away. Uh, but this was a miracle of huge proportions. 
Donald Campbell of the Bible Knowledge Commentary agrees. He discounts the dam theory saying that the handful of uh, stoppages that have happened in past history did not happen during flood stage and could not have happened during flood stage because of way too much water pressure. It would have just washed it away immediately. And then he gives his own six exegetical points saying, many supernatural elements were brought together. First, the event came to pass as predicted, chapter 3, verse 13 and 15. Second, the timing was exact, verse 15. Third, the event took place when the river was at flood stage, verse 15. Fourth, the wall of water was held in place for many hours, possibly an entire day, verse 16. Fifth, the soft, wet river bottom became dry at once, verse 17. Sixth, the water returned immediately as soon as the people had crossed over and the priests came out of the river, chapter 4, verse 18. Centuries later, the prophets Elijah and Elisha crossed the same river on dry ground to the east. Soon thereafter, Elisha crossed back over the river on dry ground. If a natural phenomenon is necessary to explain the Israelites crossing under Joshua, then one would have to conclude that two earthquakes occurred in quick succession for Elijah and Elisha, which seems a bit presumptuous. So the point is that this was an awe-inspiring miracle as the priest stood in the middle of where the river used to be immediately to their right is this massive wall of water 2,000 cubits the pictures are all wrong okay 2,000 cubits away they had to keep away from the ark that's about a thousand yards downstream uh, Israel is marching across uh, the river and uh, the mud was all dry under, underground. Mrs. Krutz uh, asked me this past week if they would have, um, if the uh, citizens of Jericho would have been able to see this. The answer is absolutely yes. Now, there's a lot of debate on where Jericho actually uh, exists today, but we have an inspired record that tells us, it's 2 Kings chapter 2, tells us that the Jordan River was in sight, clear sight of Jericho. And so, uh, according to that inspired record, these citizens of Jericho would have been able to see this awe-inspiring uh, miracle and would have been having a growing sense of horror what was going on. So God was indeed glorified in this amazing miracle. Well, with that as a background, I want to finish off the last point of last week's sermon. Uh, we saw uh, 10 points that were fertilizer for faith, Today I want to look at the specifics of what it means to walk by faith. We are commanded in the Scripture and urged in the Scripture to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. Romans 4, 12 calls us to, quote, walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had. So we are called to metaphorically walk by faith. And I believe by looking at these Israelites when they literally were walking by faith can show us how to uh, metaphorically walk by faith. And I've summarized it with seven words. First word is leave. Verse 14a says, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan. Stepping out in faith means leaving your comfort zone. And it makes it very clear that when they were leaving, they were leaving with the intent of going over the Jordan River. Uh, they had been used to the wilderness for 40 years. There were no enemies left on the east side of the river. Uh, but there were uh, several nations that were very hostile to them on the west side of the river. So leaving their camp was definitely leaving their comfort zone. Going across the Jordan was definitely entering into the danger zone. Leaving their previous life was a part of stepping out in faith. So let's give some examples of what it means for us to leave uh, by faith. Very first time that we come to Christ... We are leaving the world and we are being united to God. And sometimes it is a very, very difficult step to take. In many Eastern cultures where the community is valued much, much more than the individual, when an individual leaves Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or communism or animism, it's, uh, it's something that is very difficult because they are bucking against 
against uh, uh, family pressure and peer pressure and emotional ties, and it can be very embarrassing. And the book of Hebrews says this was the way it was for the, uh, the Christians who came out of Judaism in the first century. They had a hard time leaving their friends, their family in the synagogue system. And so what the book of Hebrews says is, hey, Jesus left Judaism, that's Hebrews 13, verse 12, and then verse 13 says, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So conversion, first step of leaving. Uh, there are many times in the Christian life when we are called to leave something before we can embrace God's call in faith. For example, let's say that the Lord prompts you to bring a rebuke to a brother or sister in this church there is a sense in which you are leaving the comfort of being liked by that person in order to do what God is calling you to do. George Mueller said that the Lord had prompted him to write about all of his sinful escapades in the past in order to give encouragement and comfort and hope to sinners who were caught in their uh, slavery to their sin. Now he knew the moment he started writing about this that he would lose his reputation with the clergy and with uh, civil officers and with other people uh, who would not think that this was cool. Uh, they would think he was a bad role model, but he left his reputation behind and he said this, I have made myself therefore a fool and degraded myself in the eyes of the inhabitants of Bristol, that you, my dear unconverted fellow sinners, who may read this, may with God's blessing be made wise. The love of Christ has constrained me to speak about my former lies, thefts, fraud, etc., that you may be benefited. And they were, they were. His ministry to these sin-enslaved wretches was incredibly profound because why? He was willing to leave his reputation behind. And there are other things that God sometimes calls us to leave when we walk by faith. God has called some people to leave very lucrative jobs in order to enter into the ministry. Um, there are, are people who have left their security in order to be joined together with a community of faith, of, faith, of believers. Um, in one case, there was a person uh, who um, had to, he, admit, uh, he admitted to having a long, uh, a one-time fling of adultery, and he thought, if I admit to this, I'm going to lose my wife, I'm going to lose everything that I hold dear to my life. And God kept prodding him and prodding him. And finally he said, okay, Lord, I'm going to leave my fears behind and I'm going to confess this and get it right. Now, in his case, it turned out okay. It turned out well. The Lord prospered that. But whether it did turn out well or not was immaterial if we hold on too tightly the next point. Leaving by itself is not enough. The second word is follow. It means following Jesus wherever he leads us. Verse 14 shows what led the way. When the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. Now last week we saw that the Ark of the Covenant was a symbolic representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marvelous, I won't recover what we talked about there. Uh, all of the detailed symbolism of Jesus. And uh, in the tabernacle, the glory cloud sat above that uh, 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 Ark of the Covenant. We're not told if it happened here. Most people assume it did not. But everybody agrees this Ark of the Covenant was a representation of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, they were to follow this Ark, representing following Jesus wherever he led them. He was now Lord of their lives. In his book, Abandoned to Christ, L.E. Maxwell, the president of my, the Bible college that I first went to, said this, Consecration is not to some service, but to Christ. Utter abandonment to Christ. And that's not just at the beginning of our Christian walk. God can call us to leave things any time uh, that he uh, puts a call upon us. For years, I had set my heart on planting churches up in Canada, and I had three well-financed options to be able to do so, one of which uh, had an unlimited spending account in, additional, in addition to the, the salary. 
And it seemed like my dreams of planting churches in Canada were coming true. And God suddenly gave me a call to Omaha. Now, I, I really was worried about coming to Omaha and leaving my dreams behind. And uh, especially since uh, my salary would be a quarter of what I had been promised up in Canada, and no spending account, and there were other issues that could have been uh, very stressful. And uh, yet I believed God had called me to this place, and so I left that behind. And apart from God's call, there continued to be many, many pressures. By the way, I was pressured enormously by both the PCA and the OPC church planting boards saying, Phil, you've got to go up there. You're the person who's called to this. And my family pressured me and my friends up there pressured me. And I said, I have to follow the Lord's call. That's just all there is to it. And apart from God's call, there continued to be many reasons to leave Omaha. In the first 10 years, I received many fantastic ministry offers, or what I considered to be temptations to escape from my call. And I had former professors and colleagues who would call me up on the phone and say, Phil, you are a fool if you do not take this. This is the perfect job for you. All you have to do is teach, no administration, no nothing. All you have to teach, teach in this mega church. And another megachurch, another one, they were constantly finding jobs for me. And I said, brothers, I appreciate what you're doing, but God has called me to Omaha and has not released me from that. And so I was abandoned to Christ and his call, and that's all that mattered. So the first point shows leaving something behind. If you have an upward call from Jesus, you are going to have to leave something behind in order to enter into that call. You might be leaving self-worth, Riches, acclaim, position, prestige, or any number of things. Okay, but we don't leave things for the sake of leaving things. That's pagan Gnosticism. No, we leave things in order to follow after Christ with all of our heart. We're utterly abandoned to Christ. You know what? Some of these Israelites, we, we should not idealize what this going into the land of Canaan was. Some of these, ideal, uh, these Israelites were going to lose their lives in the next few months. Others would receive wounds from arrows and swords and spears. Uh, others would leave love, uh, lose loved ones. There would be a lot of pain that they were going to go through, but they were committed to following Christ no matter what. Uh, shortly after the American War for Independence, one church group had the following statement of consecration, and I do think it's a bit legalistic for a church to require this of its members, but this, to voluntarily enter into this, I think is great. It says, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. If the church of Jesus Christ would have that kind of commitment to Christ, I think it would be a powerhouse that is unstoppable. Actually, I would say that if the church even had the kind of commitment to the cause of Christ that communists used to have to the spread of communism, there'd be incredible things that could happen uh, through the church of Jesus Christ. Because unlike the communists, we have the truth. We have his power. You know, we have his promise that he will always be with us. We have an eschatology of victory. God calls all of us to leave certain things and to follow him without reservation. Our life is not our own. We belong to Christ, lock, stock, and barrel, and we should act like it. A communist told a missionary with China Inland Mission, we communists, just like you Christians, have something worth dying for. Now those words so shocked the missionary that later he fell on his knees and just confessed to God his lukewarmness. And he said, Lord, what have I worth dying for? He didn't even think he had the dedication that these communists had. Well, these Israelites were following the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River, knowing full well some of them were going to die for the cause of exalting God in the land. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to lay down your life for Christ? It involves leaving perfectly good things behind and following Christ with all your heart. Okay, the third word is step. Walking by faith 
means obeying God's direct commands before you even see how those commands are going to be able to be lived out. First part of verse 15 says, And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water. Okay, their feet actually got wet. Their feet went into the water. Okay, and then he goes on to give a parenthetical statement of how audacious this was. But before we get to that parenthetical statement, I want to just focus on the fact they were willing to obey God's command even before they saw how it was going to be possible to obey it. And of course, it instantly parted the moment they put their feet into the water. This was an action of faith. And by the way, every time you step out in obedience to the Lord in faith, it strengthens your faith to expect more from the Lord. William Booth said, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step like the legs of men walking, first faith, then works, then faith again, then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. That's what it means to walk by faith. And when we stop walking by faith, then it's possible for our faith to begin to diminish, to dry up. And the reason for that is God is the giver of faith, and He is ordained to give more faith only when we exercise our faith. The expression is that we grow from faith to faith. Now, obviously, there are 10 different interpretations of that uh, phrase, faith, uh, from faith to faith in uh, Romans 1.17, but um, uh, uh, recently, Charles Quarles did uh, an exhaustive analysis of every interpretation over the past 1,500 years. I think it's a little over 10 interpretations of that phrase. And then he compared it to every example of from A to A in the Greek language that we so far have. And um, uh, his analysis is a pretty profound analysis, and he came to the conclusion that it is impossible for this to mean emphasis, which has been a very common interpretation in the commentaries. Instead, it means growth of a person's faith over time, which was the interpretation of Calvin and Sanday and Hedlum and Lagrange and others. And to me, this makes the most sense of Paul's quotation of Habakkuk 2.4. Let me, let me read, this is just kind of a, a detour here, but let me read from Romans 1, 16 through 17. He starts in verse 16 with how we get saved. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Then in verse 17, he demonstrates that if you're saved, if you've got genuine faith, it's going to keep, you're going to keep exercising faith and growing in faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now that phrase, shall live by faith, is in the future tense. So he's indicating that any person who has faith, who's already justified, is going to keep living by faith, is going to keep receiving God's power in his life, going to keep receiving the righteousness of God into his life for the rest of his life. And thus Habakkuk's call for us to not just get saved by faith, but to live by faith. Now back to my main point, the only way we can grow from faith to faith, Romans 1.17, grow from strength to strength, Psalm 84.7, grow from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is to go beyond believing God is able to do things to actually appropriating the things that God has called us to do. We must step into his provision. And the more times we do that, the more our faith grows. Now, conversely, Jeremiah 9.3 says, when you step into evil, it becomes easier then to step into the next evil. And then it keeps growing where it says in the rest of that verse, we will proceed from evil to evil. In other words, evil can grow just like faith can grow. You never are going to stay neutral. You're either growing in faith or you're retreating backwards in your faith. You can't stay the same. So acting on God's promises by faith, even when we do not see the results and how it's going to work out is an important part of growing in faith. Uh, you could just think of it this way. You're not going to get to be where George Mueller was at the end of his life until you start having a lifetime of living by faith. 
The next word is ignore. Walking by faith means ignoring the impossible, ignoring the evidences that Satan throws at you against your senses. Verse 15 shows how insane it must have seen for three million people to try to cross the river at this time uh, of year. For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. So he's letting us know this is the time when the spring runoff from the melting snow in the mountains is coming and the whole area is flooded. There's so much water that's coming through the Jordan. Now the Jordan can be crossed over by warriors uh, when it's not during flood time, but when it's during flood time, it's impossible for families, uh, whole families to, to get across. So to their human sight, it made no sense. But to faith, it always makes sense to obey God. Faith ignores any evidence contrary to God's word. Why? Because we know that God's word, the Bible, is the only infallible thing in life. So let's just make this practical. When everything went against Job in Job chapters one through two, it may have been tempting to think that God was not present. God did not care. God's not being faithful to his promises. But what did Job do? He ignored those evidences. He trusted God, he worshiped God, and he encouraged his wife to do so as well. Now it's true that Job goes on to exemplify the fact that when this is unrelenting, it is very easy for us to begin to doubt. This is what happened to Peter in Matthew chapter 14. Peter gets out of the boat. He is walking on the water as he's keeping his eyes fixed on Christ. But when his eyes begin to look at all of the evidences that are scary, all of the evidences that are alarming, then he begins to doubt and lose his faith. Now, we don't need to think about miracles to apply this. When you pray blessings into the lives of people who have been cursing you, and abusing you and using you, it makes no sense when all you're doing is factoring in the evidences that you can see. The evidences you can see are, no, they don't deserve any blessing. They deserve God's judgments. They deserve, uh, you know, justice, right? But when Christ calls us to bless those who curse us, we say, okay, Lord, will you bless this enemy of mine? Would you bless him financially? Would you bless him with an advancement in his career? Would you bless him in this way and that way? And Lord, especially, would you bless him with repentance <laughs> and bless him with salvation? That would be awesome, that would be cool. But you bless him, you don't curse him, right? That is ignoring the natural evidence that tells you what you should be doing. And you're saying, no, I'm gonna follow the evidence God has given to me of what I should be doing. Okay, so there's so many examples of each of these things in our lives. And God says that's the way to prosper. Let me give you another example. It takes faith for a businessman to implement the principles in the book, the habit of going the extra mile. Most of you have read that. But by faith, we know that is going to work out. When George Mueller would pray for the salvation of an individual, he would ignore the evidence that that person is too hard-hearted or the evidences that God has abandoned that person. All he would focus on was the promises of God on this person's behalf. So let me use an analogy, you know, you have these horses, horse-drawn uh, carts driving where there's cars and the horses could get startled. So they put blinders on the sides of the eyes of this horse so that horse is keeping his eyes fixed on the goal that is ahead of him. The next word is experience. Walking by faith means learning to experience the reality of God's supernatural in your life at his sovereign pleasure. Now I've added in the caveat that it's his sovereign uh, pleasure as an important corrective to those who think we can command a miracle at whim. No, we're not the Lord, uh, God is. He is sovereign for when and where he gives miracles. But at the same time, we must believe in the supernatural or we won't experience the supernatural. We must believe in miracles or we will not experience miracles. Um, I don't like the loose translation the New King James gives of verse 16, so I'm gonna read the literal translation again, but this is where I get this point from. That the waters which had come down from upstream stood still, were rising up in a heap, 
backing up a great deal as far back as to the city of Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan, and the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now, I've already dealt with the miracle adequately, but the only thing I want to emphasize on this point is that the age of miracles is not past. It is not past. It is now the very age of Jesus that Joshua typifies. We are in the age of miracles. And there's many uh, the scriptures. One scripture that I go to for this is Hebrews 6, verse 5. Hebrews 6, 5 refers to the miracles that the first century church was experiencing and saying they were tasting of the powers of the age to come. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that the word mellow is in that verse so that it literally says the powers of the age about to come. In AD 66, when Hebrews was being written, it was about to be fully inaugurated. The period of transition from AD 30 through 70 was almost finished. The old covenant age was, at the end of it was imminent. Hebrews 8.13 says that when Jesus spoke of a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. So legally it was made obsolete in AD 30, but then he concludes with an interesting statement. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So AD 70 was a very important demarcation point. But back to Hebrews 6.5, if miracles uh, are even more characteristic of our age than they were of the old covenant age, then we should expect an increase of miracles in this age, and especially since Jesus said, that miracle, casting out demons and miracles, is a sign that the kingdom has come. It's not the sign of eternity. Miracles casting out demons is the sign that the kingdom has come right now. So what kind of miracles and wonders? Well, let me give you a short listing of some, some of the kinds of miraculous happenings that are prophesied to happen during the age of the kingdom. Scripture anticipates that every nation will be converted and follow, live out, everything that the Bible is talking about. And people say, oh, that's impossible. Now, wait a minute. Do you believe in miracles? <laughs> we live in the age of the kingdom, the age of miracles. Don't say God can't convert the nations. Don't say the Great Commission is going to be a failure. All nations will be discipled nations, Christian nations, living out everything that he said. Here's another promise that God gives. It predicts an end to war. That's a kind of miracle. Both Isaiah 2.4 and Micah 4.3 say that nations will eventually be past having wars. It says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But there will be physical miracles on a massive scale as well. Listen to Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Not to eat him. Peacefully lie down. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Now, that mentions several miracles. Uh, there's obviously going to be some change in genetics where lions and leopards no longer eat meat and vipers no longer bite uh, and inject poison, okay? Isaiah 65 says, eventually there will be no more miscarriages, nor will they give birth to babies uh, in, um, um, how does it word it? Um, Anyway, it, it's going to not be problematical when they give birth to babies. In fact, disease is going to decrease more and more to the point, Isaiah 65 says, that it will be uh, an anomaly for a person to die at the young age of 100, and there are going to be many people who will live upwards of 1,000 years old. Miracles. The whole trajectory of history is moving toward the reversal of everything affected by the Paul, with only death being the final enemy to be destroyed, and that is destroyed in a twinkling of an eye at the end of history when Christ uh, comes back. That's the last enemy. Every other enemy is put under his feet. Now, how many thousands of years will this take in the future? I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's hundreds of thousands of years uh, in our future. 
But in the Revelation series, we looked at God's plans to positively affect even the soil that we live in. Christ's atonement, His grace, has incredibly pervasive power. It's a miraculous power. So the main point that I wanted to make here is that even though miracles are under God's sovereign administration, we live in the age where the powers of God displayed in miracles will become more and more common. We must believe in the supernatural. We must believe in miracles. I think that the reason the West does not see as many healings and as many miracles as they see in China and Africa, in, in India, when I was in India, it's just about like almost everybody I would pray for would get miraculously healed. Why do we not see as many healings here? Why do we not see as many miracles here? I because it's, think it's because Westerners with their scientific mindset are skeptical of miracles and God does not bless skepticism. Okay? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, I'm glad that this congregation believes in miracles. Last week, some of you were telling me some astounding recent miracles that the Lord was doing in your life. It's wonderful to hear these kinds of testimonies. But since the book of Joshua is a type of Jesus and his kingdom, this is a call for every member of the new Israel to believe nothing is too hard for God. Amen? Now, the next word is stand. Walking by faith means standing your ground when danger assails you. Verse 17 begins with these words. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Now to stand firmly in the Hebrew kind of implies that there might be a reason to run. <laughs> there might be a reason to not stand, right? as the waters keep piling up higher and higher, but they resisted that urge and they stood their ground with the ark being placed between the people and the water. When parents get nervous, their children tend to get nervous. When the leaders of a church, you know, cave in to ungodly government mandates, it's easy for the members to cave in to ungodly government mandates. Now, sometimes we fail, sometimes uh, we elders succeed. But Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And he repeats that call to stand in verses 11, 13, and 14. If you lived in China right now, uh, where a lot of churches, especially some of uh, the reformed churches are being closed down, would you obey the government's call to not gather together, or would you obey God's call in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, which says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, those Hebrews were also a persecuted minority. Christianity was made illegal by Rome and by the Jews, and both the Romans and the Jews were hunting down Christians, so it was exceedingly scary, dangerous business for these Christians to obey that call. And yet Luke, who wrote Hebrews, uh, calls them, admonishes them to stand strong. Taking a stand when it is not safe to do so makes no sense to those who live by sight or to those who don't want to be canceled by corporate America or to those who don't want to be canceled by social media. Okay, but taking a stand is walking by faith and it strengthens our faith. So even how you do deal with social media can reflect walking by faith or walking by sight. The last word is bless. Faith does not just receive things from God's throne for ourselves. James says, you ask amiss in your prayer life when you ask just so you can consume it on your own lusts, right? Your own pleasures. God-given faith desires to receive so that the whole body can benefit together with us. Verse 17 concludes, And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So those priests took their stand so that everyone could benefit. They experienced a miracle for the benefit of others. And we too are called to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God on behalf of God's kingdom, on behalf of his people. I mean, even our conversation, Ephesians 4.29 says, when you're conversing with one another, you need to do it for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. If you study 
1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, you know, the passages deal with spiritual gifts. There are phrases in those chapters, which I won't get into right now, that indicate every single gift was given for the benefit of what? The body of the kingdom, benefiting others. There are many ways to test this. What is our attitude in prayer? Is it gimme, gimme, gimme? You know, so that I can have comfort and gladness, or is it a kingdom-oriented prayer? So when you pray for a car because your car got crashed, you should have probably been saving up for the car in the first place, but let's just assume you've been saving up and it got crashed like three weeks into your savings plan, okay? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. So you're praying, Lord, I need finances. I don't have the finances for this. You can pray that in a kingdom-oriented way, or you can pray it in a self-oriented way. If you've dedicated your house, your car, everything that you have, and Lord can use your car any time he calls you, yes, Lord, my car is at your disposal, you can pray that prayer in faith because it is a kingdom-oriented prayer. Now, even though God is incredibly generous in blessing us individually, most of the miracles that God has sovereignly displayed and distributed into my life and into Kathy's life uh, has been miracles to bless others. And this is true when I ministered in India and in other uh, foreign countries, and it's been true here. Now, since we didn't usually serve fish to company, we, we didn't, I don't think, have any multiplication of fish. But there were times where we had a huge crowd unexpectedly show up, and uh, we didn't have enough food prepared. We thought we had prepared for more than enough, and we prayed, Lord, may this food that's sufficient to feed 50 be able to feed over 100. And the Lord, over and over, you ask Kathy, she'll tell you these same stories. Over and over, the Lord would not only give enough for the people to have firsts and plenty of seconds, but we had enough left over so that the international students who lived with us and us ate off that food for days. I mean, God <laughs> did this over and over, but it was a miracle to bless others. And there are many examples of miracles in our ordinary life that were given so that we could more effectively bless others. Now, I mentioned George Mueller last week. He had so many miracles that happened in his life, and it shouldn't be surprising because his whole life was dedicated to blessing others, right? That was, that was what it was all about, whether it was in the orphanage, in church, in community, or in conferences. Now, here's the point. Miracles are usually distributed on behalf of the kingdom. And the more kingdom-oriented you are, the more likely you will be to experience miracles. Now, last week, we focused mainly on the fertilizer out of which faith grows. Very, very important lessons. But this passage shows the things that need to be present if we are to continue to walk in faith. We must leave our comfort zone. We must follow Jesus wherever he leads. We must step out in obedience to God's commands, even if they seem impossible. We must ignore the naysayers and all of the evidence that contradicts God's word and really believe that the Bible is the only infallible thing in life. We must believe in the supernatural, learn to experience the supernatural. We must take a stand. Uh, we must receive from the Lord so that we can bless others. May it be so of each of us. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the many examples that you strew through the scriptures of your supernatural working through us as weak creatures. Thank you for calling us to walk by faith and not in our own strength. In ourselves, we can do nothing. We acknowledge that. But I thank you for your promise that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Father, help us to have faith distributed into our lives from your throne and help us to take advantage of that faith, to keep growing in faith. May we be a congregation of faith. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.